This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. Perseverance and endurance is really, you know, the key to so much in one's life. Um, You just, you can't stop. You just have to keep going. You know, you may not know exactly your direction at any particular point, but if you stop and do nothing, you'll never find the direction. So just to keep venturing out and doing something that, you know, maybe is not the norm. When Patricia Williams retired from her glamorous career as an accomplished ballerina, she was just age 30 and had no clear plan for what was next. So she created one. She wanted to cook and soon enough found herself in the kitchens of the four-star restaurant, The Quilted Giraffe, and later became executive chef for some of New York's finest restaurants. She'll tell you she never got paid as much as the men she worked with, but she has stayed true to herself in an industry dominated by them. There are very few women with Patricia's resume, and she embodies everything there is to love about women chefs. Her process in constructing menus and meals is like watching a great dancer perform. Coming up, you'll hear her inspiring story about her creation of Lazy Duck and why she has friendships with so many great jazz musicians and why, after moving from Texas to New York, she never went back. This is her story. In the vast culinary landscape we share, we are all carving out a place for ourselves. Each of us, in our own way, is a one-woman kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold, and welcome to my kitchen. Patricia Williams, I am so excited to be with you today. You are truly one of the unsung, important women chefs in America. And you've been around for a while. We were sort of around the same time in the early 80s. But your story is remarkable. And uh, I mean, each woman has their own journey, but yours is unusual and you continue. It's, I think, three or four decades now that you are an executive chef running, I think, New York's first supper club, private supper club. But you started life as a ballerina, a prima ballerina. <laughs> so welcome. I can't wait to hear the whole, the whole story. And you and I have known each other for decades, but not, but not very well. So um, what's so exciting for me is to get to know the people I admire so much in this very intimate setting. So how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on this wonderful podcast. It's what a great idea. I came here originally from Texas as a ballet dancer mm. to work for a company called Harkness Ballet, which is which was is, a very was well-known. a very famous, uh, very famous company, very diverse. In um, I think Rebecca was one of the first people to actually have uh, diversity in races. They were all colors. Shapes and sizes. No mm. one looked the same. It was a small company. We were trained in a very different way. So I believe that's why my transition to being a chef was so much easier after all the years of dancing. And it's a proven fact that most dancers who go on, because our careers are quite short. I retired at, from ballet when I was 30 mm-hmm. and moved to France. And then I started cooking after that. So, but the, 
dedication and the ability to hyper-focus and concentrate really made my path quite um, advanced for that time. Well, this is so exciting because you do hear about a lot of women artists or past- who become pastry chefs, uh, people who have done graduate work uh, to become artists or painters, and they sometimes transition into the food world and very often will wind up in the pastry arts department, which kind of makes sense. But you're the first person I know who was a professional dancer, ballet dancer, but I can really see the, um, the segue because what amazing rigor to be a dancer, stamina, uh, level of professionalism, and teamwork, right? Because in a way, working in a kitchen is a lot about choreography and being very aware of who else is around you. So I can see where that transition, you know, could work. Um, So I'm wondering, if you didn't go to France, and what made you go to France when you retired at age 30 from being a ballet dancer? um, If you didn't go to France, do you think you would have become a chef? Or what was the connection there? When I stopped dancing, I had already always set a goal for myself that if I wasn't where I wanted to be at 30, then I would do something else as opposed to getting to the end of it and saying, now what do I do? I really did not have a path after that. I I knew that I wanted to do something, but I didn't know exactly what. So I moved to France, which I had always wanted to go, and I just... uh, sort of did nothing. Actually, I did take class behind the Moulin Rouge uh, <laughs> from a very famous uh, teacher in uh, in Paris at that time, Franchetti. This was way before the food scene really hit the state um, in the early 80s. We really, there were some people doing farm to table, you know, some farmers, some, but very, very few at that time. And it was still very continental at that very point. Continental still very continental French and, and Italian. Uh, I'm completely self-taught. I never went to school. Um, and I decided that I wanted to be a cook, not a chef, a cook. So I came back to New York and I made a list of the restaurants that I wanted to work at. And Quilted Giraffe was on my top list because remember it was the only American four-star restaurant to ever exist. Absolutely. It was one of the most important restaurants in America at that time in the early 80s. It was started by Barry and Susan Wine. Yes. Four stars, the Quilted Giraffe, such a funny name too. And so I went and asked Barry for a job and he hired me right then. And because why? I said, well, this is when you don't know so much. You 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 get away with everything. I said <laughs> I can do that. He says no, you can't. I'm like, I can tell you. I know I can learn to do that very quickly. He said, well, you will be able to put desserts on a plate. That, that was is, your first job. That's what you can do. So I would go early, stay late, get all my station prepped, and go around because we had like two star people, men and women, line cooks. Mm. And it was it was an incredible place to work. Um, so then I just started learning my station more, other people's station. Can I help you? Can I do this? Can I do that? Can I do this? And just worked my way up there. And did you ever leave the dessert station? Oh, I did. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and actually, I could make the next? desserts, desserts, and not and not uh, not put them uh, just on the plate. Um, I went into hot apps, and then on the line. Um, that's when the wasabi tuna pizza was like really hot. So that was, you know, when the things on the station. And one day, as I was making, and it was a very different uh, way of calling out tickets. It was done in minutes. 
Oh, in, tell me about that. I've never fr- heard of it that. Was, yeah, it was, it was brilliant um, because they used to just pick up like tables at a time and then things wouldn't be ready. In five, we need this. So you would have to count down and you knew it had to be in the window in five minutes or you were uh, a little bit in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that's a fantastic connection to being a ballet dancer yes, in terms of really counting, counting time and rhythm and kind of a musicality about uh, getting a meal on the table. And I think you mentioned that there really were quite a few women in the kitchen at that time. There were four or five women in the kitchen at that time. So good good for them, because that was something really unusual in the early 80s. And it was mostly people with second careers. Mm. Good for them. I'm admiring them even more when I think about this. But it almost feels like ancient history in a way. Well, you know, I see Barry uh, here. Sometimes he's come to... Uh, some of the dinners and 10 chairs, and so we, we stay in contact with each other. So, Well, you mentioned 10 chairs, and we're definitely going to talk about that. It is uh, an amazing private supper club that you actually started 12 years ago, so that had to be one of the first um, private... I mean, there are dining clubs now, and this has become kind of a millennial thing, but 12 years ago, not so much. So. Not so much, and I call Florence up, and she wrote it up and put the calendar in the New York Times, and... And when you say Florence, that's Florence, Florence Fabricant of the New York Times. Very exciting. But Patricia, part of the show is about, it's a little bit past, present, and future, because I think a lot of women's journeys uh, begin in the kitchen, often with their mother, sometimes with their father. And I think you have a story that relates more to your father, right? Tell us about your background. You mentioned that you grew up in Texas. Right. Though my father enjoyed having daughters. I'm the only daughter. He has many sons. Oh, how many? How many are you? Five. So four sons and you. And me. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was a big hunter, fisher person. So I learned to hunt and fish from the time I was very young. He was actually a very good cook, my dad. Uh, he traveled a lot uh, in oil. So he brought back many different spices and things from Portugal, from Saudi Arabia, from all these different oh. places. And uh on each of his ventures, he would bring back something that we could all talk about mm. and, and share with us. He had a at his um, house uh, in the in the country. He had a smoke shack, which was set apart from the house. That he would smoke meats and make sausages from all the deer and wild boar and things that they would hunt and fish and catch. So you didn't have to go to cooking school. You you had the best education in the world. I mean, who gets to see that? And I'm even sensing when you're telling the story that you're almost connecting. Aha, this is where it really started for me when you were a little girl and that your father opened your, your world up to all of the flavors and experiences of travel and spices and uh, really living off the land and turning his kill into delectable <laughs> Del- things to eat. <laughs> Delicious. He, he was made great sausages like wild boar and, and, and venison sausage and all these other things. And my mother is uh, Cherokee, Indian, and Mexican. So oh. it was a very unique background. And she came from a family of 13. Your some, mother? My mother, and some of whom were professional fishermen and professional farmers. So it was always, food was always around. My aunts were great cooks. Um, we had pecan trees, fig trees, okra grew in the backyard and, you know, mm. fields of mint and things like this. So, yeah, those things do, you know, when people say, 
why do I cook the way I do? When Ruth uh, Reichel gave me my two-star review, she said to me, you don't cook like anybody else. And I'm like, oh, my God. I said, is that is that a good thing? <laughs> I, here's my review. Is that a good thing? She said, yes, it's a good thing. Wow. So um, in trying to teach people the way I cook in professional kitchens, it's always been very hard uh, to get them – um, to feel it, to taste it, to look at it, to smell it, to know when it's ready to to be turned or when it's ready to eat or mm. it's it's the things are so subtle right it, and I think it is very hard to actually teach this, but clearly you have a very particular style of food and cooking, and you have also transitioned uh, because the quilted giraffe was kind of new American. And there were so many famous dishes. The other one was, uh, did you ever make the beggar's purses? Beggar's purses, hundreds. <laughs> hundreds. <laughs> can you describe what they what they are? Uh, beggar's pur- At that time, we would get these. I don't remember what size they were. It was a tin, uh, probably about seven-inch round mm-hmm. of black caviar. And we would go through almost one of those every two days. Wow. So it was and just, they were little crepes, right, that were we filled cre- with the crepes and then just a little creme fraiche, um, caviar on top that would be weighed. Each one had to be weighed. Uh-uh. Uh, mm-hmm. And then you would blanch the chives, wrap it, and tie it. You know, it's funny when you mention creme fraiche, um, even that was new because I remember the, meeting the man who brought creme fraiche to America. And his name was, I haven't thought about this in a long time, but his name was Saul Zausner. And there was only one company and there was only one container of creme fraiche that you could buy. But even in the early 80s, that was so new. And so many things. I mean, it was so exciting for you and me and this other group of women who were around in the food world. Actually, I was around in the late mid-70s because everything we take for granted now was so new then. A pesto, freshly made pasta, balsamic vinegar, you know, wonderful cheeses from all over the world. Um, And Asian food hadn't even begun to really creep into our repertoire. But Barry Wine at the Quilted Giraffe really started incorporating some uh, Asian ingredients and and dishes. So, um, but back to your childhood for a minute. So, did you realize that you grew up in this kind of dreamland, this really remarkable global um, between your mother and father and all 13 aunts who cooked, or I don't know if they were all aunts, but uh, that you just grew up in a, a family of a kind of food and love and celebration? Uh, only when I went to school. <laughs> because what was in my lunch was nothing like what was in their lunch. <laughs> and I was always trying to trade my lunch. I remember begging my mother if I could have, please, 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 can I have, I wanted to have a TV dinner. And she said no. So I went to my friend Sally's and she had TV dinners. Oh. And I had a TV dinner. I thought, hmm. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> Sometimes we really don't know what we have, right, until we step away or lose it even. Um, okay, so... You went to school to be a ballet dancer. From the time I was seven, yes. Wow. And it was because you always dreamed about being a ballet dancer? I always wanted to be a ballet dancer. My older sister, my mother and father were married to to two separate people. Uh, My older sister uh, was very into the arts, um, classical music. There was a beautiful theater in our neighborhood 
that showed the art films. And so we saw, you know, Nareya of Dance and all these people who on film. Mm. So at the moment I saw them dancing, I knew that I wanted to be a ballet dancer. Wow. It is amazing what kind of attracts us when we're young. Where does that come from, right? It's something really innate and something very intuitive. It had to be because my mother mother was a welder for Hughes Tool for 50 years. So So what did she say when you said, Mom, I want to be a ballet dancer? She said, well, you can't. Nobody in her family is a ballet dancer. I said, I can do it, Mother. I I know I can do it. And you did. And I did. And I did. By golly. Okay, that's a good place. When we come back, Patricia, we're going to talk more about what are those qualities that you have that enabled you to keep on doing all these remarkable things. And here's a cooking tip to share. This from my guest, Patricia Williams. For years and years and years and years, you had many pastry bags. Now they all come uh, disposable. But I find ice cream scoops for cookies, for gougere, for so many baked items work really, really well. You just scoop and put on the tray, and it's the exact measurement, the exact thing every time. From Patricia's kitchen to yours, give it a try and pass it along. Patricia, so clearly you had a lot of grit and creativity, but if you were to create a headline for your journey, what would it be? Texas conquers New York. Really? Tell me about that. That's fascinating. Um, When I came from, I was 17 when I arrived in New York from Texas. And did you know anyone at the time? No. Wow. No. I remember going to Harkness um, and just saying, I'd like a scholarship. And (laughs) (laughs) again, if you don't know anything, you're not embarrassed. So you just, you just ask. And the, and the teacher who was my coach for 30 years after that, David Mm. Howard, said, oh, yes, okay, fine, go over there. (laughs) Well, you had already obviously danced in Texas. Correct, for the second company of of Houston Ballet. Oh, Not for the the company, but there was a, like, Houston Ballet Mm 2. So I had already danced for them. And so when I came here, I was accomplished, but there was a very rigorous way of training at heart that was very different than any other place. They had kinesiologists. They had uh, nutritionists. They had massage therapists. They had the person who made the shoes. They had a canteen to make sure that we had correct uh, dishes to eat and Mm. so we weren't starving ourselves. And, you know, we were weighed every Monday and Friday of every single week. But, you know. (laughs) Fascinating. So they really were doing something Doing something very different than most Mm. other companies had done. A real departure from classical Total training. Total departure from classical training. They're actually doing a book about them now called The American Story, um, which was very interesting. I mean, the, the diversity in the company was pretty amazing and continued to until it was no longer around. And when was that? It has to be 20 years ago now. But it had a nice long life it and, has a, and a big reputation. A know. huge I – mean, there was the Harkness Theater that Rebecca had built. I never went back. Um, perseverance and endurance is really, you know, the key to so much in one's life. 
Um, you just you can't stop. You just have to keep going. You know, you may not know exactly your direction at any particular point, but if you stop and do nothing, you'll never find the direction. So just to keep venturing out and doing something that, you know, maybe is not the norm. Well, but it was unusual because you said that my, so many people you knew who were from Texas ultimately went back. They all went back. Uh, but you stayed. And so you went to, you worked at the Quilted Giraffe, again, New York's four-star restaurant, first of American cuisine. And then you worked for Arizona 206, which was an extraordinarily important restaurant, 150 Worcester Street, Restaurant Charlotte, the City Wine and Cigar Bar, I think it was Company, called. Yeah. Company, And uh, you got two stars by Ruth Reichel in the New York Times. And then you were the executive chef for two restaurants in two hotels on Park Avenue. I mean, Patricia, honestly, very few people have this resume. And uh, I will say as a woman chef, and we can talk a little bit about the the pros and cons of using that terminology. But yet, in fact, especially at the time, being a woman chef and persevering and having these jobs was extraordinary. Very extraordinary. I mean, there were several women around at that time. You know, the Diane Forleys, Susan Weaver, there were there were quite a few women chefs in the city at that time, many of with their own restaurants. But it was the not the norm. It was very unusual. Um, I've heard horror stories mm-hmm. about uh, <laughs> how women were treated. Um, I never saw that so much. Quilted giraffe, never. Mm-hmm. Um, at Arizona 206, uh, we had an all-female day kitchen. Kind of high-end Southwestern food, which very is very high new for end. the city. We, again, you know, back then, we had farm-to-table. We were breaking down whole animals and, you know, making stocks and the 10 chili chili sauce. And we had... I forgot about that. Yes. Believe <laughs> I burnt it once. I turned the Did anyone off. notice? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I spent another two hours there. Afterwards, uh, re-prepping it so I could not burn it the next time. You were forgiven. I was forgiven. I was. Um, so, w- what is it about you that keeps you going? What are some of your real strengths? What uh, were liabilities? What were some of the challenges? It doesn't sound like you had a lot of like me too experiences, but obviously, just moving along in the industry as a woman chef in a very difficult, um, you know, job, and just keep on. Ascending. Right. I found it more difficult many times from the front of the house than from the back of the house. Mm. Their perspectives of the GMs or the or the food and beverage directors or even servers at certain points and at certain places were not very respectful. But I don't think you can really look at yourself through someone else's eyes. You have to sort of look at yourself in your own mirror mm. and say, you know what, that is not me. It doesn't matter what they do. They can't make, they can't put that label on me. That is what they think, but that's not what I think of myself. And I think that is one thing that you, you have to have that core of strength that even though you might have your doubts yourself, mm-hmm. that core of strength has to be so ingrained in you and the way you think and the way you do that people can't just like, rush by you and throw you off your balance. You know, it's like if you're in arabesque and somebody touches you, you can't just fall over. You know, you have to have that concreteness to yourself and to the way you think about yourself. You know, analyze yourself all the time to make it better. 
But I think one of the things that I do fault myself with is that sometimes I'm too hard on myself. I don't say, mm. okay, that really wasn't that bad. You know, because you don't go through life with perfection. There are things that happen. Well, that's a very female trait, but I'm sitting here really smiling as you're talking about inner core and some of these qualities because you really could be at once talking about being a ballet dancer and a chef. Uh, and clearly you epitomized both realities. Patricia, then you went on, you had all of these stellar jobs, chef, executive chef, and then you ran a jazz club. Tell me about that. <laughs> well, uh, when I wanted to leave the hotel, I had known the owners of Smoke Jazz and Supper Club for a long time. So they decided that they wanted to do a kitchen there because before that it was just uh, a venue with no food, only alcohol and, and the music. Um, and so I built a kitchen with them. Then I went back and did some other work. And then I was tired of working in running two union hotels simultaneously, which can... Oh, New York City unions yeah. are not easy to deal with. Nope. <laughs> so um, I went to work for them, and I got some really good press from Ed Levine, who wrote it up and... In Serious Eats. In Serious Eats. Um, and uh, supper clubs and jazz clubs are notorious for bad food. Um, so we usually <laughs> eat before we go. But, you know, it continues... Till until now to have pretty good food, even though I think my name is still on the menu. I just never asked them to take it off. But good. It's I your ran menu. it and then I ran front of the house and back of the house for a certain time because the owners were away a lot. And I was very fortunate to have met and continue friendships with some of the greatest jazz musicians in the world. Oh, who's standing out to you? How wonderful. Well, he just passed away. Harold Mayburn was was one of the loves of my life. Mm. But Mary Stallings, mm. um, Emmett Cohen, who, young and upcoming, won the Monk um, Award last year. Fabulous. Um, so I go see them at Dizzy's in different places now and don't go up to smoke so much, but... You know, I still stay in contact with Alan Harris and his wife. And it just it's a whole community of people that just I can walk into any place and, and know them all almost. Patricia, do you feel you ever made the money you deserved? No. We, mm -hmm. <laughs> Tell um, me about that. Well, I remember once doing an interview with a very famous restaurateur who said the reason he hires men and not women is because most of the time they have families and he can do anything he wants to them and they'll still keep their job because he needs to support his family. Well, I think that's a real truth. Um, maybe, hopefully, not so much today. I think it is today as well. You do think it I is? I do think so. Well, I believe maybe it's also the reason that women have become very entrepreneurial and started making different decisions. They love the industry, but they wanted to do it a little differently and open their own businesses or their own bakeries or catering businesses where they had control over their professional life in order to, in fact, have families and have a more balanced uh, existence. Which leads me to my next question. You at some point decided to leave a traditional restaurant hotel setting and created your own amazing boutique uh, dining club. So when did you decide and how did you go about it? Well, 10 Chairs NYC. Um, first, I found a space that I liked. Um, you don't want to do these things in your home home. So I, I found a space, a duplex with a garden. And at first, you had to climb out the window to get to the garden. <laughs> and Part of the charm. <laughs> yeah. You know. Then I have a friend who um, is very handy. So he helped me build a table for 10. 
He made this beautiful chandelier for me, and he built a door and some stairs that fold up and fold down so people can go in and out of the garden now. Wow. So once I cleaned up the entire messy, nobody else had access to the garden. I had access to everything. So I cleaned it up, and then the landlord decided that he was going to have three garden apartments. So he he put doors, and luckily I have some really good neighbors. Uh, So now three of us share the backyard, So, but it's fine. And um, what is it like to have kind of a private business? Do you need to do all of the same things as a regular commercial restaurant in terms of insurance and liabilities and all of the same um, licenses? I don't. uh, Most of the time there aren't licenses. Maybe you don't want to answer this. (laughs) Most of the time there aren't licenses, um, but I do have health department, you know, and I do file my taxes and I do claim – the money and I have an accountant and I order from purveyors that have been my purveyors for 20 years. And I work with a restaurant in my neighborhood who, if I need something delivered there, I get it delivered there. And Wonderful. So, it's just- so 10 chairs is the numeric 10 chairs. And this is how it's described. It sounds so dreamy. One long table lighted by a modern chandelier and ten chairs. The table is set. Guests arrive. Sparkling wine is served. Voila! Once again, the joy of ten chairs New York City begins. Every guest knows they have entered a wonderful private world of memorable dining. Okay, how do we sign up? <laughs> so where is it? How do people make reservations? How much does it cost? What what happens? Um, my website is 10ShareSNYC. Wonderful. And um, they can go on. They see the calendar, uh, the menus, um, past menus with photographs. I also have a section notes from the chef. I try to write to the guests about the dinner, about how I feel about things, um, just what decided, what made me decide to cook. So I usually start with some sort of a theme, be it spring, summer, or Italy or a country or just uh, an ingredient mm. and take it from there. So it's four courses. I work with a sommelier in my neighborhood who supplies the wines. Wonderful. And each of the wines are paired with the four courses. Uh, it usually starts around 7 o'clock in somewhere around 10 o'clock. I serve, I clear, and I have I have some help in the kitchen, one person that works with me. But it's a conversation between me and my guests of I there is a menu. I used to print the menus, but I find more now that they really enjoy listening to my description mm. of the menu item and what made, made me make that for this evening. So this really is beginning <clears throat> to feel like a performance, like a very interactive um, performance. Correct. Correct. Wonderful. You don't dance, do you? I still take class. <laughs> not <laughs> but not, there, but not, in, not, not in the kitchen. Not, no, not in the kitchen. And I'm just thinking how really remarkable this is as an idea, as a dining concept. Do people know each other? Some do, some don't. Um, some come for many times. I have people who, when I print out the calendar, they the day the calendar is printed, they will call me or email me. P123Williams at gmail.com and sign up for multiple dinners. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. And you do this once a week? Once a week. 
And uh, it sounds like you wouldn't do it if it wasn't successful and profitable. So it sounds like you have found a way to um, do the undoable, which is to do this once once a week and uh, to, to be in business this long. You know, we have a saying in our office that to be successful is any restaurant that lasts the length of its lease. <laughs> so I think you may be doing this for a long time. I I'm going to continue doing this for a very long time. It's a real intimate kind of relationship, it sounds like. It's very intimate. I mean, as I say, it's the it's top floor of a duplex. And, you know, I'm there. I iron the tablecloth. I set the table. I polish the silverware. I polish the glasses. Well, can't and- wait to come. <laughs> And when we come back, I have um, great curiosity about what some of your most outstanding restaurant experiences, though, were as a chef. And to talk about your legacy recipe. And the gate to the garden of fulfilled desire is reached by a road. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at RoseanneGold.com. So, Patricia, you've had so many restaurant experiences as a chef. Is there one place um, or an experience that really stands out for you, looking back on your amazing career? City Wine and Cigar Company, where I got my two stars. It was actually built for me. I was I had been working with Drew Nipron for a long time, for like nine years, and he said to me, which Chris do you want to work with, this Chris or that Chris? So I chose this Chris. This Chris was uh, an architect who built City Wine and Cigar Company, and it was beautiful. Um, there was a small room uh, with these beautiful, huge portraits made with egg tempura, and it was a private dining room, and in the back... Lovely, lovely. I mean, the room was just absolutely gorgeous. And it was the first time I could really cook exactly what I wanted to cook. And it was the time, and it was supposed to be food from cigar producing regions. Sounds kind of funny, but (laughs) it does. It does. But you think of all the spices that I grew up with, and you think of where tobacco has grown, and then you start to build on those menus that using those flavors and tastes. Mm. So there's quite a lot of Latin influence to it. Um, and I had beautiful Bernadotte plates, and it was just a gorgeous, gorgeous restaurant. People can't really afford those things much anymore. No, no. (laughs) There's sort of like this new kind of Brooklyn aesthetic where it's very, very minimal, right? And those were really days of glory. But what an honor that Drew Nipurant, who was like Mr. Restaurateur, uh, Nobu and Tribeca Grill, and just, he's an awesome person, but would create a restaurant and have you be the executive chef and really created for you a woman in the cigar bar. Right. Um, So lots Lots of, you know, kind of almost contradictions. But you loved it because it was beautiful. It was built for you. It. Uh, what were some of the things on the menu? You said it had a bit of a Latin well, uh, feel. Well, the signature one was the Lazy Duck. Oh, what was that? And the Lazy Duck was I had a purveyor who only did poultry. So the chicken was fine. And I had a, a rubbed chicken. But I thought to myself, you know, remember de Orange, mm. something like that. How can we make that into something that works with this restaurant. They're slowly cooked, they're pricked, they're hung up, you know, like pecking duck, peking ducks. Um, so I created the Lazy Duck, which stayed in the oven like 250 for four hours. Mm. And you would prick the skin all over so that the skin would get very crisp. and But the meat stayed still so very moist. Right, it was almost like self-basting. It was self-basting, right? yeah. exactly. 
Um, so that was my signature dish then, and people still write to me and say, please put the lazy duck on the menu every time I'm in a restaurant. Well, I have one, one client goes, where's the duck? Where's the duck? <laughs> was, how was it flavored? And did it have a little bit of orange, that a um, from the Actually, uh, I had pest? sour oranges mm. with honey. Nice. And some ancho chili powder on Perfect. top. So it was wow. really, yeah. Yeah, I want that too. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, would you consider that your legacy recipe? Or what might you consider? I think a that is recipe? really my legacy recipe. Um, when I was at the hotel many years ago, it was the lobster quesadilla. So that was really? written about, yeah, when I was at Restaurant Charlotte, which was. That was a the, very elegant hotel restaurant, Very too. elegant. Mm. Built as the Maclow Hotel. And did, do you think you in, invented that dish, the lobster quesadilla? Well, I think I did. <laughs> <laughs> I never had one when I was in Texas. So, well, yeah, I think I did. <laughs> and what else was in it? <clears throat> oh, of course, cheese, which cheese and, and shellfish should never be served together. Oh, and my so mother sure would that. make homemade tortillas for breakfast all the time. Ah. So I was the first person at that time to make our own homemade uh, flour tortillas as opposed to corn. With lobster and some cheese. With and was there tomatillo or yeah, something? Tomatillo tomato and a, you know, some salsa on top with... Um, Creme fresh? <laughs> uh, no, but crema pura, which is sort of the Latin answer to creme fresh. Wonderful. Oh, it does sound great. So yeah, I'm hearing some amazing signature dishes. And when Ruth Reichel said what she said, I'm really getting the idea now. She meant it in a very positive way that no one cooked like you. Yeah, I just, uh, when I see food, what I usually do is I, I go to the market or go to the supermarket, whichever, you know, Union Square Market is such a gorgeous market. You can go there and, you know, you have to have take a taxi home because you bought too much stuff. <laughs> uh, but I start to lay it out like a photograph or a picture mm-hmm. and sort of move the pieces around saying, oh, well, this can go with this and this can go with that. And mm. then I put the proteins in afterwards. I always start with the vegetables and the grains and those things first, you know, buy several different types of herbs and think, well, that will go with this and this will go with that. And then start to play it like a, you know, like a food Ouija board, you know, just moving things from one place to the other until I figure it out. And then I'll write the menu and then I think about the menu. Is that really, should you say soul fingers or should you say soul batons? I don't know. So then you start to think about that. Um, I read a lot, not necessarily about food. If I buy a cookbook, I'm interested in what the author thinks, not what the recipe is. Wonderful. And I'm sitting here so grooving on your thought process about how you approach a dish and how you approach a menu. It's so beautiful to hear it. It sounds either like the way an artist, an actual artist might paint a picture, or it sounds like the way a choreographer might choreograph a ballet. Uh, I've watched a lot of the process of choreography, you know, with Mr. Balanchine and Mr. Robbins and, you know, so many other people that I worked with, that it is, that's the way I see it. I see food in color, not in black and white or something just to go on a menu. So do you eat like a ballerina? What do you like to eat? Mm. Where do you like to go? Oh, restaurants? Sure. I have a couple of favorites. Um, Of course, always Porterhouse Mm. because it's not just a steakhouse to me. 
He has the most beautiful fish and shellfish on the menu. This is Michael Lamonaco, who was the chef at Windows on the World. Mm -hmm. Um, Because we are at Dizzy's a lot, so we eat there. Then there's a restaurant called King. King, yes. uh, Which I really love. You know exactly. It has the sensibility. You walk into the door and you know exactly what it's going to be. The wine list is beautiful. The kitchen is right there. Three women, one some, one back of the house, one front of the house. Um, And the sensibilities of the food, you know exactly what it is. It's beautiful, clean, fresh um, preparations that are just flavorful and tasty. Wonderful. We actually had the chef on the show when she was very, very pregnant. Um, And I remember reading about it because I was very attracted to something that was said in the review about the fact that her menu, their menu, read like poetry. And that's something that's so interesting to me. And you also reference menu language and even the choice of a word can so determine um, how a person perceives a dish and whether they order it or not. Uh, so that's something that interests me very much. But uh, is there another restaurant that you love? I always enjoy going to any of Jean George's restaurants. Mm. Um, you, and even Perry Street that his son has, um, the level of cooking is so high and the service. You know, sometimes they have, you know, a prefix at the bar, which I don't mind eating at the bar. It doesn't bother me at all. I don't have to have a table. And many times, because my husband and I never make reservations, never, and unless it's something very specific. We always just end up going someplace. So many times you are subjected to eat at the bar, but we really enjoy eating at the bar. It's it's just more comfortable. Well, you know? I'm so glad you feel that way because there's a good chance you and I would not have seen each other uh, for yet more years if I didn't pick you up at the bar or you came over to me at, at Porterhouse just a few weeks ago. It was so great to run into you after all these years. So uh, when you're not going out to Porterhouse or King or one of Jean-Georges' restaurants, what do you eat at home? Do you grab a yogurt or do you boil an egg? What do you do? Um, actually, I usually have yogurt and fruit for breakfast. Mm-hmm. Uh, my husband goes to the office and eats. Uh, and then for lunch, it depends. I mean, I'll sometimes – I don't mind eating at home by myself, but if – if I have friends who are in restaurants in my neighborhood, I'll go have a bite to eat at lunch, you know, chat with the bartender or something like that. Dinner, usually I'm at home unless um, unless I go out. But I have some really nice neighborhood restaurants, uh, Ardesia, who I do some consulting work for, a wine bar that has lovely little cheeses and bites and things like that. And I've known the owner for a long time. So that's kind of like my go-to neighborhood hang, so... Ardesia. Ardesia. Yes, I've heard about it. So you also do some consulting. Correct. Um, in addition to running the boutique <laughs> supper club, because I think it's interesting for women to know kind of the trajectory and what's possible. Um, you know, I think if you're a ballerina that you get to a certain age and you really can't do it anymore, but is a cook or chef, you have so many possibilities, you know, if you're creative. Yeah, I think that's very true. Uh, as a ballet dancer, you know, there is a, an expiration date on you. Uh, mm. You know, it starts when, when you're like 14, you know, oh the, the expiration. And you, I have to be able to face that, you know, or it becomes too painful. But as a chef, I can now. I work for the French Cheese Board sometimes. Um, so I'll do little events for them. You know, that Halloween was really nice there. They decorate their windows beautifully. Um, and they wanted macaroni and cheese. So I did three types of macaroni and cheese for them. And it's something that 
I can do 10 chairs as much as I want or as little as I want. And mm. I can control my own destiny at this point in my career. How wonderful. Patricia, so this is a question, this just went so quickly, uh, but this is a question I ask all my guests. Um, what does One Woman Kitchen mean to you? I was thinking about this, and I was thinking that, yes, women have something to say, and I think that there has not been a platform for that of this height, of this educated view um, for people like me to come in and say what I think. Patricia, that's so beautiful. Women really do have a lot to say. And I think this is our year in many ways. You know, we've been around three or four decades waiting for this moment. And here we are face-to-face -face, uh, sharing it. So I know everyone will want to come to 10 chairs. So tell us again how we get in touch with you. And how, how much is it, by the way? How it's $100 per person. Um, if people want to leave a tip, they can. Uh, you can use PayPal, which is patriciawilliams at AOL.com, or cash or check at the door. It's four courses and uh, four wines that are matched by a SOM to go with those. Oh, it sounds wonderful. And the website is 10 Chairs NYC. So thank you so much for being with me today on One Woman Kitchen. And thank you to all of you for joining me and Patricia. I'm Roseanne Gold. One Woman Kitchen is produced by Mouth Media Network, copyright 2019. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at rosannegold.com. And if you're wondering about my beautiful theme music, it's called The Garden, written and performed by award-winning singer-songwriter Audrey Appleby. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. Connect.